0: Well, good morning, Hellas Church. It's great to be with you today. I'm so glad that you've tuned in to worship with us this morning. Uh, now's the opportunity we have to continue our worship by studying the Scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those, turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we pick up where we left off last week in our series titled Strangers and Exiles, Sinners of a Different Sort. And we're taking a journey through this powerful little epistle known as 1 Peter. And, uh, but before we dive into verses 13 to 21, let me voice a prayer Over our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and the goodness that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the life you've birthed within us. We thank you for the hope that we have as a result of his life, death, and resurrection. The hope that we have due to the promise he's given us that one day he will return, making all things new. I pray that you would help us to live in the meantime for your glory. Help us to live in the meantime in such a way that displays the difference Jesus makes in our lives so that others may be drawn to find life in him as well. God, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word, and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever felt like you didn't belong somewhere? Have you ever been somewhere that just wasn't your scene and it was clear to everyone there? Well, years ago, I had that experience when a friend of mine invited me to a Screamo concert. Now, Screamo music is this angsty, angry kind of music that, that uh, the vocalist grabs the microphone, and rather than singing, they just start screaming, and, and rock music accompanies them that's really loud and, and messy and muddy and all these dynamics. Well, I walked into this gas station garage that was converted into a temporary concert venue, and and the moment I stepped into that space, it was clear to everyone that I didn't belong there. It was obvious for several reasons. One, my jeans fit comfortably. Uh, they did not cling to my legs like saran wrap. It was also clear because I had not taken my sister's eyeliner and applied it to my own face. It was, it was clear because my shirt had a collar and, and some buttons. My shirt had some colors, and that was quite unique in that setting. And then when the vocalist stepped up and began to play and started screaming in the microphone, everyone cheered and kind of rushed the stage and began jumping up and down, uh, excited about what was taking place. Meanwhile, I'm just cringing in the back, shrinking against the wall because it was clear that I was a stranger in a foreign land, that that place was not my scene. Well, Christian, I want you to know this morning that, that this world is not your scene, that if you have ever felt as though you do not belong here, it's because you don't. Your faith and your hope rests in the one who lived and died and rose again. Your faith and hope rests in the one who one day will return, making all things new. And in the meantime, as you live out your faith and your hope in Jesus, for many reasons you will begin to stand out in the world. You will find yourself not squaring with the prevailing values of your society. You will not square with the prevailing values of your culture. You will discover more and more as time goes on that this world is not your scene. And to say that this world is not your scene, that you and I do not belong here, that we don't fit in with the world as it is, it has nothing to do with the style of clothing that we wear. It has nothing to do with the type of music that we listen to. No, it has everything to do with the difference Jesus makes in the lives of those who are trusting in him this new life that he has birthed within us by his grace and according to his mercy, this being swept up into the kingdom of God so that we are embodying and embracing the values of God's kingdom right now in this world. And the more we align our lives up with the reality of the gospel, the less we will feel at home in this world. Well one of the reasons why 1st Peter was written was to remind Christians of that to help them discover what it means for them to be strangers in a foreign land how they are to live as strangers and exiles what does it mean for them to be sinners of a different sort and Peter begins to flesh out in this letter the difference Jesus makes in all of life and and the book begins powerfully with this incredible description of what God has done for us in Christ in verse 3 you have this benediction, this doxology, this word of praise directed towards God, the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it just cascades, reminding readers of all that God has done for them. But then in verse 13, there's a shift where Peter moves towards addressing the lives that we are to live as a result of what God has done. And in the passage, he just He's encouraging us and imploring us to display the difference Jesus makes. Live lives characterized by hope and holiness. Now, I know the moment I mentioned that word holiness, some of you have started to sweat because the idea of living a holy life frightens you because you don't know what that means. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about what it means to pursue holiness and to live a holy life. And I want to clarify uh, some of that for you today by, by starting with telling you what holiness is not. Holiness is not about you and I escaping from the world around us. Living a holy life does not require that you and I get rid of our technology. It does not require that we make resolutions not to go to movie theaters or, or concerts. Holiness does not require that we escape from the world around us. We are not called to abandon sinful cities, retreating to the serene mountains where we can set up compounds, where we can live out holiness. The reason why that wouldn't work and why that isn't the case is because no matter where you go, you're still there. And our biggest problem isn't the world around us. Our biggest problem is the sin within us. And so you can change locations all you want, but until your heart is addressed... By the reality and the power of the gospel, nothing's going to change, and holiness will continue to be evasive. It will elude you. But then we also want to remember that holiness does not require that we escape from the world around us because we're disciples of Jesus. We're followers of Christ. And Jesus is the most holy person in the universe, and when he came into the world, he did not come into the world to escape it. He stepped into the world to engage it. And so Jesus moved towards sinners and sufferers like you and me, and as we grow in holiness and as we display the difference Jesus makes in our lives, we're going to move in that same direction, engaging the world, not escaping from the world, moving towards sinners and sufferers like us, bringing to bear upon them the the beautiful realities of the gospel and God's grace. But then secondly, holiness is also not about elevating oneself above the world. Sometimes we confuse holiness with haughtiness, that is, pride and arrogance. We use phrases like holier than thou to describe people whose attitudes suggest that they think they are better than others, that they are superior to other people, and so they just kind of live with their chest out and their chin up, looking down upon everyone, but again, I remind you that we are followers of Jesus, the most holy person in the universe. And when Jesus walked through this world, he did not look down upon anyone. Instead, he looked upon everyone with compassion. And as you and I journey through the world that is, and we pursue holiness, and we display the difference Jesus makes, we begin to see everything from his perspective. We begin to see people from his vantage point. And with that comes compassion. So we look down upon no one. We look upon everyone with compassion, with love, with grace. But then we also want to say that holiness is not about external appearances. Holiness is not about putting up a front that's easy to do. The Pharisees put up a front. They appeared to people as holy. They said and did all the right things in public. They prayed elaborate public prayers. They gave alms to the poor. They kept the Sabbath. They did all the things that were expected of them as holy people, as Pharisees. They kept God's law to the letter. But when Jesus stepped on, he saw right through them. He understood that holiness isn't skin deep. Holiness isn't about external appearances. So it doesn't really matter How we present ourselves to the world around us. What matters is where we are in our relationship with God. So Jesus would say to them, you know, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. Let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of our church. Let us not be a people whose holiness is skin deep. Let let us not be a people who think holiness is a matter of external appearances because we can get really good at fronting. We can get really good at persuading people to think of us as holy people, saying the right things while our heart remains far from God. Let that not be. Let that not be said of anyone in our faith family. But then, holiness is not about engaging in religious practices. You know, lots of religions in the world engage in religious practices, lots of religions in the world. Encourage people to assemble in buildings like synagogues and mosques or temples. Lots of religions in the world encourage people to pray and to meditate. Lots of religions in the world read through old books or old texts, whether it be the Quran or the Book of Mormon. There's lots of religions that engage in religious practices. But holiness is not about engaging in religious practices. Holiness is, has less to do with our practices and it has more to do with presence. There was a moment when Moses was walking through the wilderness when he was around 40 years of age. and As he was walking through the wilderness, he came upon a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed. And as he recognized, as he saw this taking place, he then soon heard a voice speak to him. As God was showing up to him, God was speaking to him and he says, Moses, come close. But before you come closer, take a moment to remove the sandals from your feet because the ground upon which you are standing is holy. Now, what made that ground holy? What made that ground holy had nothing to do with Moses. It had everything to do with the presence of God. So when we talk about holiness, we're not so much focusing on religious practices. We're focusing upon the divine presence. That as followers of Jesus, we have been given the Holy Spirit and it is his presence within us that makes us holy. It is his presence within us that makes holiness possible in practical ways as we journey through this world. There's a moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where Paul writes, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Holiness is about presence, not necessarily Practice, but then holiness is not about being extremely dull and boring. One reason pursuing holiness doesn't appeal to many people is because they think that means pursuing a dull, boring, overly serious life. That holy people are those who don't tell jokes, they don't laugh, they don't crack smiles. That holy people do not enjoy good things about God's creation. But it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Another way of translating that happy are the holy, for they shall see God, they shall be with God, they shall commune with God, they shall fellowship with God. Happy are the holy. C.S. Lewis put it this way. How little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, he will find it irresistible. There's nothing dull and boring about true holiness. There's nothing dull and boring about displaying the difference Jesus makes in our lives. It is a captivating way to live. And so as we consider how to do that, how do we display the difference Jesus makes? I just want to give you three things from this passage today, one of which, if we're going to embrace our calling, if we're going to display the difference Jesus makes in our lives, then it's going to start by you and I embracing who we are, embracing our identity in Christ. You see this in verse 13. In verse 13, our passage begins with the word, therefore. Now, that is a very important term. The word, therefore, is a hinged term saying, look, before you move any further in this passage, you need to remember what's just been said. Before you seek to live a holy life or you seek to live an obedient life or you seek to do the things that God is calling you to do and even expecting you to do, before you move in that direction, you must first look backwards and remember what's just been said. He's saying don't move any further until you remember who you are. Because the strength and the resources you need to carry out your calling, to display the difference Jesus makes, those resources are not found in and of yourself. Those resources stem from the fact that God has done something special in your life. And so the word, therefore, tells us to remember all that God has done for us. Remember who he has made us to be. You look up at verse 3 once again. Peter makes this statement, reminding us of what God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice the references. He refers to God as as father. He refers to our new birth. He refers to our inheritance. Now, all of this is familial language. All of this speaks to the new identity we have in Christ. Because in Christ, God is no longer just our creator. God has now become our father. And as we've been given new birth, as we've we've been born again, we've been born into a new family, the family of God. And, And with that familial identity comes an inheritance. It comes a hope that is guaranteed. And so he's saying, look, before you, move forward in your pursuit of holiness. You need to remember who you are because you're not going to pursue holiness perfectly. And if you're not careful, you're going to think that your relationship with God is dependent upon the amount of holiness you attain as you journey through this world. He's saying no, understand that your the progress you can make in the pursuit of holiness, it flows out of the energy of your identity. So you must remember who you are. You must embrace who you are. You must know What God has done for you in Christ to make you his child, to make you new, and to promise you an inheritance that's going to rock the world one day. There's another doxology that helps kind of color this picture in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul writes a very similar introduction to his letter, but listen to what he says. He says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ? For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. And what he's reminding us there is that we have been, or he's reminding us of our position in Christ. Because if we're gonna talk about holiness, we have to draw the distinction between our positional holiness and our practical holiness. And practical holiness only becomes possible because we are aware of our positional holiness, because we are in Christ. For when you and I are in Christ, we've spiritually identified with him. Our faith is in him. Our lives have been united with him. When that happens, it is from that dynamic that practical holiness becomes possible. For when we are in Christ, what is true of him then becomes true of us. So Jesus is the capital S Son of God. He's the beloved Son of God. And as you and I are in Christ and we find ourselves relating to Christ in that way, all of a sudden we become small s sons and small d daughters of God. We are beloved. We are the children of God. We relate to him as our father. This also means when we are in Christ, what is true of him becomes true of us. So that when God the Father looks upon our lives, he doesn't see us directly. He sees us in Christ. And if Jesus is holy, then suddenly we become holy. If Jesus is righteous, suddenly we become righteous. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the wonder of our salvation, that we are in Christ. That's where our identity is found. That's where our hope is found. That's where our faith is placed. That's the location of our lives from where we Relate to God, and that's how we engage the world around us. This made a huge impact on uh, St. Augustine back in the day. Augustine was an early church father, and before he became a follower of Jesus, he was quite the hedonist, and he sought pleasure and, and accolades and all types of other avenues. He wanted to make a name for himself. Much of his story is about him trying to find himself in the world and to achieve a certain identity in the world. But after he became a Christian, he realized that identity for the Christian isn't something that we achieve. It's not something that we attain. It is something we receive. It is something that is given to us because of what God has done for us. And so Augustine came to realize that. He became a Christian, and one day he was walking down the street, and this woman who he used to hook up with, she saw him, and she began to call his name, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And as soon as Augustine realized what was happening, he took off running in the opposite direction. He he sprinted because he he knew how tempting it would have been to kind of fall back in some some of his old patterns. And she just followed him saying, Augustine, it is I, it is I. But then suddenly Augustine turned and he said, yes, but it is not I. I'm not that guy anymore. I've been given a new identity and I'm embracing it. And he embraced it in that moment to resist temptation and to pursue holiness. Peter goes on to write after saying, therefore. He then gives some practical perspective for us as we seek to display the difference Jesus makes. He says, therefore, in light of who you are, in light of your new identity, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now the emphasis here is on the mind. And the flow of thought is very similar to how you and I talk and think about making disciples as we encourage disciples to constantly take the gospel in, remember who they are in Christ, to constantly think the gospel through, engage the mind so that you're connecting the dots between faith in Jesus and the life that you are to live. And then as you think the gospel through, you then turn the gospel out. You apply, you obey, you respond. And so this rhythm of taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, turning the gospel out, it is is affirmed here in this passage when Peter says, therefore, in light of who you are, you've taken the gospel in, now think the gospel through. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. He's saying the Christian faith is not a mindless faith. The Christian faith is a faith whereby we are engaging our minds because our minds are a doorway to our lives being changed and transformed. Notice what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, there's another powerful therefore statement. One of the things about the book of Romans is the first 11 chapters just lays out the gospel, saying this is the gospel that you are taking in by faith. And then in chapter 12, he begins to shift gears saying, okay, now think the gospel through and turn the gospel out. And he moves towards application that flows from gospel realities. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of, God's, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed because you are preparing your mind for action. Be transformed because you are thinking about your faith. You are thinking about the gospel. You are thinking through the difference Jesus makes in all of life. You are engaging your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So our minds are important. How we think matters. This is why we want to speak truth to one another. This is why we want to study the Bible together. Because we want to fill our minds with the word of God. We want to fill our minds with gospel realities. So that the Holy Spirit, when he works within our lives, he can connect the dots. And help us see areas that Jesus is working upon within us. Helping us to see how to see the world from Jesus' perspective. That we would engage our mind to avoid being swept up in the mob mentality of our society or the mob mentalities of our culture. But instead, we're thinking Christianly, we're thinking gospelly about everything that we are interacting with in this world. This is what it means to prepare your minds for action. Now, that phrase in 1 Peter, The translation of that phrase, uh, prepare your minds for action, is an ancient colloquialism. And uh, literally, it translates to uh, gird up one's loins, which is a strange phrase. Gird up the loins. Now, back in the day, guys wore these long, flowing robes, the polar opposite of skinny jeans. And and some of the clothes that you and I wear today, but they wear these long, flowing robes. And usually, they just kind of let them hang loose around their body. If they were just out for a casual stroll or a walk, that's what would happen. But if the situation came where they had to get aggressive, maybe they had to run, maybe they had to do some hard work, they had to exert some energy and some sweat, what they would do then would, was to gird up the loins, which means they would take the long excess of fabric and they would tie it up around their legs so that they could move more fluidly. They could move more freely. They could move more quickly. And so when they said, gird up the loins, it was a colloquialism very similar to some of the things that we say today, such as, um, well, let's roll up our sleeves, it's time to get to work. Or if you're playing football, all right, let's, let's strap it on, let's strap our helmets on so that, we can, so that we can go after this opponent, so that we can engage this moment. Well, here we're being told to be, to be mentally engaged in thinking through the gospel and remembering who we are in Christ to be mentally engaged in thinking through the difference Jesus makes in our lives as we journey through the world that is. See, when we become a Christian, contrary to cultural assumptions, when you become a Christian, you do not check your mind at the door. Instead, you submit your mind to the gospel realities you now believe, these gospel realities that are communicated to us through God's written word. And so you become a student of the Bible. You become a thinker as you follow Jesus and as you display the difference he makes. Now, there's an interesting phrase after he says, prepare your minds for action. He then goes on to say that we're to be sober-minded. I really like that that word, sober-mindedness. And I think it is an important word for you and I to think about this morning because the opposite of sober-mindedness is drunken-mindedness. And if you've ever been around a drunk person, you realize pretty quickly that they're not the most reasonable, that a drunk person tends to be overly emotional. One moment, a drunk person may be singing songs in the bar, holding up their glass, and and in the very next moment, in a drop of a hat, they're, they're crying in the corner. And then in the next moment, they're out in the street Fighting and arguing and yelling with someone, a drunk person isn't very reasonable. A drunk person isn't sober minded. A drunk person is overly emotional. And so when Peter writes that we're to be sober minded, he's saying, Look, I want you to, to stay cognizant of who you are. I want you to stay cognizant of the gospel realities that you believe. Don't be drunk minded. And I think what this means for us, and one word that we want to think about today is that right now we're living in an era where sober-mindedness has been set aside for drunken-minded emotionalism. There's not a lot of sober-mindedness in our society. There's not a lot of sober-mindedness in our culture. Just think about the last road rage incident you were a part of. Or think about the last conversation you've had with someone who shared a different political perspective than you. Chances are in that moment, emotions ran high, mental reasoning was set aside, and the conversation proved unproductive. This happens on social media constantly where headlines and tweets and Instagram posts, they they don't spark or stimulate rational discussion or reasonable dialogue. They just stoke passions. They just arouse emotions. And we become emotional. We're not in a good state to make good decisions, to make good choices. This is why when you're ever emotional or you're very upset, you shouldn't make a big decision. No, you need to step back and remember your emotions are good, but your emotions can't be trusted. Your emotions are good. They are useful and they should be steered in God's direction as you worship him with passion, as you worship him with your emotions, as you process your emotions in relationship with God. But... Sober-mindedness is what should drive the car. Sober-mindedness is, is where your decisions should be made from. And so one of the ways in which you and I can display the difference Jesus makes in all of life is by being sober-minded people in the midst of so much drunken-mindedness, in the midst of so much drunken-minded emotionalism. We want to think clearly. We want to think well about issues pertaining to justice, about issues that people are arguing about on the street or on social media. We don't want to be swept up in a mob mentality that's fueled by emotionalism. We want to engage our minds, preparing them for action, learning how to think about God's world and God's creation, about who we are, so that we can love the world well, so that we can serve the world well, so that we can be a blessing to the world and not a curse. And so sober-mindedness is where we want to be. As Christians, we are to be sober-minded. We think through our decisions. We think through our actions. We don't follow our emotions. We follow sober-mindedness. We surrender our emotions to our reason, all of which is being sanctified and transformed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to display the difference Jesus makes in all of life, we must embrace who we are. We must embrace the fact that God has done something significant for us, and he's doing significant things within us. But then secondly, we display the difference Jesus makes by embracing who God is. He goes on to write in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desire of your former ignorance. Now, notice that you and I are not allowed to be passive in our pursuit of holiness, that we're not to be acted upon by that which is familiar. He says, do not be conformed to the desire of your former ignorance. Don't be acted upon. Instead, you are to be the actor. You are to act upon that which is faithful to the new life you have in Christ. You are, act, you are to act upon the knowledge you now have of who God is. And that knowledge of who God is stands in contrast with what you were rescued from, of your former ignorance, And then he goes on, but as the one, and here he starts describing who God is, but as the one, that is God who called you is holy, that is, is different, is unique, is set apart. You also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as exiles. So a couple things about who God is in this text. One, God is our Holy Father. God is our Holy Father. And you've heard the phrase, like father, like son. Perhaps you have kids who want to be like you. In fact, perhaps you have kids whom you look at and you see, man, they remind me a whole lot of me. Well, there's a sense in which our Holy Father wants to look upon his kids in the world and say to himself, and they, they remind me of me. Like father, like son, my son Asher wanted to get his haircut like mine the other day, and so he talked Kim into doing it, and and she gave it a shot. She did her best, and he you now has a haircut. Uh, I don't know if it's quite like mine, but but the the intent is there. Well, when it comes to being holy like God is holy, we might not get it right every time. The lines may be crooked, crookedly cut in our hairline or whatever the case may be, but the Father. Sees and he takes joy in the desire. He sees and he takes joy in, in kids who want to be like him. And so he says to his kids, I want you to be holy, for I am holy. And what's interesting is that that phrase, there's a quotation there from the book of Leviticus where he takes the spirit of the, of the Levitical law that was to set Israel apart as a holy people in the world and he applies it to the church. He understands that Israel was called to be holy because God is holy. And the nature of their holiness as a nation under the old covenant, it was uh, different from the nature of our holiness as people who were living under the new covenant. There are aspects of the civil law or the ceremonial law that no longer apply to the church because Jesus has, has uh, satisfied them. He has brought them to their end in his life, death, and resurrection. But there are still aspects of God's moral law that applies. And actually, it's God's moral law that is the heavier aspects of the law. They are the harder ones to carry out. The moral law that is swept up in the words, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself. God's moral law that is conveyed in that statement. But understand that the moral law, which are the heavier parts, those those remain. And so when we think about what it means to be holy as God is holy, we're speaking about matters pertaining to morality, matters pertaining to personal purity. We're thinking about what we say no to, our lust of the flesh, our pride in possessions, our infatuation with the world around us, the things that we say no to, but we're also thinking about the things we say yes to, we say yes to things related to self-control and sober-mindedness. We say yes to things that, that are related to, to serving our neighbors and to blessing people around us. But when you think about the moral law and this call to be holy, understand that God's holy expectations of his children, they have not lessened under the new covenant. We cannot say, well, we're under the new covenant, therefore our practical holiness doesn't matter or that the standards of holiness aren't as, as high. no. God's holy expectations of his kids have not lessened, but here's the deal. Though they have not lessened, they have lightened. They've lightened because you and I have been given new hearts. We no longer have hearts of stone. We have hearts of flesh. We are now no longer left to ourselves to carry out God's moral law. We've been given the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to energize our pursuit of practical holiness, to enable us to be holy as God is holy, to enable us to grow in that direction. So his holy expectations of us haven't lessened, but they have lightened because we have new hearts and we have the Holy Spirit living within us. He is our holy father, and we want to be like him. But he's also, he goes on to say that God is our impartial judge. Now, when you think about God as your father, you think intimacy, but understand that intimacy with God does not translate to irreverence before God. No, He is our Holy Father and He is our impartial judge. And He judges impartially according to each one's works. A guy by the name of C.E.B. Cranfield put it this way. He said, it is, not, it is of God's infinite condescension that you are allowed to call Him Father. You are not to presume upon his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble. He has not ceased to be the impartial judge of all people. The more truly, the more intimately we know him, the more awe and reverence we should feel. The more intimacy you have with God, your Holy Father, the more awe and reverence that you should show him as the impartial judge of all people. You see, awe and reverence is what you experience in that moment you run towards the Grand Canyon. You're drawn to its beauty. You want to get as close to the precipice as possible. But the closer you get, the slower you begin to walk because you realize in that moment that you're not approaching a ditch. You're approaching a canyon. And so, yes, God is our Holy Father. He is also our impartial judge. We have intimacy and reverence that fuel our Understanding of who God is. It is intimacy and reverence that informs how we are to live before Him in the world that is. I can't help but think of Joseph, who pursued holiness in light of these realities. Joseph was a man who lived in a world that was not his home. He lived as an exile in Egypt. And as he was living as an exile in Egypt, he was subjected to temptation. On one occasion, on more than one occasion, a woman named Well, Potiphar's wife, Uh, she came to him and, and tried to hit on him. But Joseph, in every moment, resisted. He told her no. He told her no. He told her no. Every day, she tempted. Now, it would have been very easy for Joseph to have given in because nobody else was around. His brothers were back in Israel. He had no family there. He had no friends there. It was just him and the rest of Egypt. He could have succumbed to the temptation and nobody would have found out, but he refused to do so. Why? Well, because of his intimacy and reverence, because he understood who God is, a holy father and an impartial judge. And although nobody else could see him in that moment, he still knew that God could see him. And he feared and revered God too much to sin against him. So rather than succumbing to the temptation, he ran from it. He ran from it saying, I shall not sin against my God. So let me ask you, what do you do in those hidden moments when no one is around? Are you under the illusion that no one sees you? Are you under the illusion that you are alone? Have you forgotten that your Holy Father is also the impartial judge and he sees all things? that God is everywhere present, so you are never hidden from his sight? As you consider that, then think about what it means to be his child and what it means to bring him honor and so that you might resist temptation and not convince yourself of thinking that you are hidden in any way, shape, or form. And just as Joseph resisted temptation in Egypt, you can resist temptation in your room. So you look at Joseph's story and you may ask, well, how did he do that? Like, yes, he may have understood who God was, and, but how did he really kind of flee from Potiphar's wife in that moment where there's a refrain that, that pops up in that story over and over and over again. We are told that the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. And Christian, I want you to understand that the Lord is with you too. He will give you a way out so that you might flee temptation. In your hidden moments, you are not alone. God is with you. And so we embrace the reality of who God is, our Holy Father and our impartial judge. And then lastly, we display the difference Jesus makes by embracing the gospel. This may sound redundant, but we display the difference Jesus makes by embracing the gospel, by coming back to it over and over and over again. This is exactly what Peter does. I love this about the flow of this passage because in verses 18 to 21 Peter returns to the gospel and Peter ends where he has where he began everything he ends where he he started and by coming back to the gospel he's enthralled with Christ for he knows that only an enthralled heart will lead to a transformed life and so he rehearses the gospel over and over and over again look at verse 18 for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He ties our pursuit of holiness to the fact that we have been redeemed. That we were redeemed not just from hell, but we were redeemed from an empty way of living. We were redeemed from perishable salvations. He says that our redemption came not through perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Here's the gospel. And if you are not yet a Christian, I encourage you to listen closely. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to listen closely. This is the gospel. If if our redemption, that is our freedom, our life, our hope, our salvation, if it was dependent upon finite things, then we have no salvation. Silver and gold perish. And any other thing you might put your faith and hope in, it will perish Two, political parties, perish. Economic systems, perish. Justice movements devoid of the gospel, perish. So if you're going to be about something during your days in this world, be about the gospel and the holiness of life that it energizes, recognizing that you have been redeemed and that redemption is available, not with perishable things like politics and economics and justice movements devoid of the gospel. Understand That redemption is available, and it has been acquired through the precious blood of Jesus. The blood of the Son of God was shed so that we might be set free, so that we might be given life, so that we might be swept up in hope. His blood delivers us from being pushed around by the mob-like emotionalism of our current cultural climate. It is His blood that anchors us in a life that lasts, a salvation that is certain. So what are you putting your faith and hope in? Are you putting your faith and hope in something that is perishable, something that will not last? Or are you putting your faith and hope in the precious blood of Jesus? He goes on to remind us that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was revealed in these last times for you, saying Jesus is the most important person in the universe. What he accomplished for us was planned from before the foundations of the earth. Jesus matters. He says, Through Jesus you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Every one of us put our faith and our hope in something. But for the Christian, our faith and our hope are in God because he planned and purposed to send Jesus into the world to live and to die and to rise again, to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves and nobody else in this world could do for us. That's the gospel reality. And because our faith and hope are in God, pursuing practical holiness isn't optional. It's not optional because it is now desirable. When your heart is enthralled with what God has done for you in Christ, suddenly you your desires begin to change and you want to honor the God who has redeemed you. You want to honor the Savior who has loved you. You want to love him in return. You want to obey him and listen to him and do the things that bring him pleasure and joy and honor, not because you are trying to earn your redemption, but because you have already been redeemed. Displaying the difference Jesus makes in all of life is not an option. It is not an option for the follower of Jesus. And I worry about those who talk about it as though it is an option because usually they they talk about the pursuit of holiness like it's an option that nobody wants. It's the pizza topping that nobody wants. You know, anchovies is available at every pizza joint, but nobody asks for anchovies. Nobody wants that. It's not a desirable option. Well, holiness is not the anchovies of the Christian life. Displaying the difference Jesus makes is not an option for us. It is desired by us because our hearts have been made new. Our hearts have been enthralled with Jesus and what he has done for us. This is Peter's example. This is the flow of the text. He starts with gospel. He challenges our lives to pursue holiness. And then he ends with gospel. He comes back to it because he can't get away from it. And if you are a Christian, you can't get away from the gospel either. In fact, you shouldn't want to get away from the gospel either. The life that you live is a life that is led where you have taken the gospel through, you are thinking the, you're taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, and turning the gospel out, displaying the difference Jesus makes because of the gospel. And so if you're someone who has tasted and seen that, that God is good, that his holiness is desirable, then seek it, pursue it, go after it. Sink into our faith family and our community so that we can help you move in that direction and we can all grow in displaying the difference Jesus makes in all of life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you've made us in Christ. We thank you for who you are as our Holy Father and impartial judge. And we thank you for the gospel that we are called to believe all the days of our lives. Would you help us to rehearse it over and over and over again? Give us grace never to get over the gospel, but to constantly put ourselves underneath the gospel, remembering the source of our redemption, the reason for our redemption, remembering the reality of our redemption. So God, we thank you for the gospel and we pray that our hearts would be anchored in it. In Jesus' name, amen.